who would like more power in anything? All right, beautiful. What would power do for you? If you had more, change the government. Who just said that, Alan Conroy? You know, see, now we've just broken every cultural rule. We're talking religion and politics. Anyone brave enough to actually suggest what more uh, power would actually do for them? Like, happy to share publicly, like if you actually had more power and you can pick whatever power you want, what, what could you do with it? Come on. Howard's got something. What is it, Howard? You bring about world peace? Yeah. Someone else? Yeah. I'm just going with any. <laughs> yeah. Why though? So what would you do with it? What, what do you think? Like if you're thinking that, you'd probably make a mess of it. What, is, what would power do for you? Other than maybe lead to an end point where you make a mess of it. Like what, what would it get you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 One of the, um, we'll just pull up at that point, you might get another crack in a sec, but uh, one of the, uh, I think one of the underlying reasons why, and, and you can kind of hear it in some of those, one of the underlying reasons why we, we would like to have more power is because we are afraid of things. Or we're afraid of things not going our way, or we're afraid of things, I mean, if you think about, um, for example, if you think about, there's people out there that say they don't have any fear, all right? Uh, and that actually may be true, but you know, a lot of people who don't have any fear have kind of taken control of their world in a way, and they've gone after power in a way that actually nullifies fear. Do you get, do you get my point? So there's this, there's this weird kind of connection between fear and power, because the reality is, uh, like if you think about, if you kind of got two ends of the spectrum, if there was a spectrum, on one end you have people who kind of get stuck in fear, and up this end you've got people who love to get power and control and work out ways to do that, right? You've got people who are kind of getting stuck or maybe even along the continuum. You've got people at either end getting stuck and then people along the continuum who are kind of some weird kind of mixture of it because, you know, at the end of the day, power actually deals with fear. And fear actually is about, almost all the time, fear is about things that are beyond your control. Like you don't actually have enough power 
to deal with the threat that exists over here. That's kind of what anxiety is. Anxiety is like this, this internal busyness that says, I've actually got to get control over a potential threat that exists for me. And the way that I, I would get control over that is if I had some kind of power to actually do that. Does that make sense? And the, the big question that I would have for, uh, for people who don't tend to get stuck in fear but love to get power and control is, what, well, what is that? Like, what it, where are you getting that power and that control from? I mean, some people get power and control by saying they don't care about anything else. They've still got power and control, but that's, that's how they deal with, the, in a sense, the fear of uh, things rolling the way they don't want them to roll. Well, today we're actually looking at a prayer of Paul where he actually prays that, that people would have power. All right? And uh, it's a good prayer. It's, it's a, it's a standout prayer in the whole, the whole of the Scriptures. So if you can grab your Bibles, uh, I'd love to read through it with you. Ephesians 3, verse uh, 14 to 19. Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19. There's Bibles up the back, either side of the doorway up there if you need to, need to grab them. Ephesians 3, starting at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, just notice, I'm just going to make a couple of comments as we go through. Isn't that just fascinating, just from the kickoff, all right? What is he doing? He's actually physically, there's a sense there of physical bowing. I bow my knees before who? The Father. So you've got this strange kind of mix, haven't you, of uh, awesomeness in the true sense of the word and intimacy. It's like what? I bow my knees, he's this sovereign, but all of a sudden he's father. Uh, amazing kind of thing that Paul does there. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. There's a family likeness in everything that God has created. It, it, it looks at some level, it resembles him at some level. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is actually the end of Paul's intercessory prayer. So he actually started back in Ephesians 1.1, and he's been rollicking along every now and then with a couple of little diversions along the way. And he basically wraps up at the end of chapter 3 this intercessory prayer for the Ephesians. Um, and here's kind of the big idea behind where I'm headed today, all right? The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, leads us to powerful communion with Christ, which leads to a powerful revelation of the love of Christ. I think that's where Paul's going. I think Paul's thoughts are all connected there. Go back to um, verse 14 uh, to 16 there. You notice there actually in verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but uh, God, uh, Paul in Ephesians has regularly said that God's giving you things in proportion to his riches. Now, how rich is God? Unlimited, right? Infinite, right? So here's the first thing, first cab off the rank. If Paul's praying that God gives you power in proportion to his might, 
Is that going to be powerful? Okay, so here's the thing. The reality is that what, what Paul's actually saying here is it's a spirit that's going to bring strength to your inner being. He's actually saying, Paul's praying that the Ephesians receive an inward endowment of spiritual strength. One commentator said that God does not give strength in a niggardly measure. He doesn't hand out like a couple of crumbs. And you see this, you know, like God's love for us is in proportion to who he is. It, it's always that way. Like if you look the whole way through the scriptures, what do you got? You got God saying, hey, listen, I'm giving you a portion that comes out of the fullness of who I am. And the fullness of who he is just overflows and overflows and overflows. So when he gives you some strength, he doesn't have less of it. You get that? When he gives you mercy, he doesn't have less of it. When he gives you love, he doesn't have less of it. It's an abundance. It's an infinite source. Does it make sense to us? And God's interested in making you strong on the inside. Now, some of you might go, what do we need strength for? Well, everything. Let's just start there. <laughs> everything. I mean, the scriptures are clear, right? We've got a daily struggle against sin, against turning from God, against temptation. You're going to need strength for that, right? We need daily renewal. Who knows that? We need strength for daily renewal every day. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says the outer person is wasting away. Who's getting older? And they know that. Aches and pains. I said to my wife the other day, I said, is there some kind of muscle in your hip here? Because I've never noticed it before, but right now it hurts a lot. <laughs> the outer person is, being, is wasting away. Paul says we need to be inwardly renewed day by day. See, the spirit is up to stuff. And he's, and he's working and he's wanting to bring strength to you. Now, I want to show you a quick vid that uh, Alex McClennan actually shot through to me. This is uh, the Bible Project. Because I'll tell you something, you start talking about the Holy Spirit and people can get really weird sometimes. Have you noticed that? And if you don't know Jesus, um, it's even weirder, right? But here's the bottom line. Uh, there are three persons in God, one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I thought it'd be good just to play this. It goes for about two or three minutes. And it just details uh, a few of the biblical ideas about the Holy Spirit and, uh, and what, his, um, what his role is. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's Spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but... What is God's Spirit? Yeah, so the Spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. <sighs> So you feel that inside you? Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply, that too is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. 
Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes, and the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's Spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story is saying that God's Spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's Spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity, living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving spirit. So here's the thing, a couple of things to notice just out of that, uh, that little video. You notice the whole way through the spirit is talked about with personal pronouns, all right? It's not like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, we do not agree with the Jehovah's Witness that the Holy Spirit is only a power. We think the Holy Spirit is powerful and that he brings power, but he's actually a person. Um, but you can see there from that video that one of the key, uh, p- uh, one of the key activities of the, uh, the Holy Spirit is to actually bring power to people. Uh, and you can see here for Paul that he, he knows that too. He's saying, Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and bring power to people. Now, uh, what I want you to see here, uh, go back to uh, Ephesians 3, verse 16 and 17. And notice there, there's a little kind of parallelism at the end of verse 16 and verse 17. So it's kind of the same idea, but said two different ways. Um, Verse 16 there, uh, Paul says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. And then here's the other half of it. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So here's the thing. How do you actually get strengthened with power in your inner being? by Christ dwelling in your heart. Do you see that? That's what Paul's actually praying in there. He's just going, you're actually going to be really, really powerful when Christ dwells powerfully inside of you. 
All right. Now notice a couple of things here. Go back to verse 17 there. It says, so that Christ may dwell in your what? In your hearts. All right. Now, if you've been at the project for a while, you're pretty well versed in what the heart is, right? But here we go. For those who haven't been, the heart is the inner being. It's the deepest kind of core of, what it, of your personhood in terms of your motivational desires and, and where behavior and everything comes from. It comprises the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. It's the driving center, the invisible driving center of you. So what is the spirit actually working to do? Well, this is fascinating, right? And the reason why this is fascinating is because we've been working through Ephesians and we know that humans are, that those who love Jesus are adopted, loved, a saint, they're chosen, they're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ, they're redeemed, they're forgiven, they have an inheritance, they're alive from the dead, they're brought near to Jesus, they're a temple, a house in a sense of the Holy Spirit. But Paul still prays, Spirit, would you help these people to have Christ to dwell in them? Which brings me to the second term, dwell. Do you know what this term is about? Uh, this term is about the presence of God. That's what it is. Now, some of you sit there and you just go, yeah, don't I have God? Like if I become a Christian, doesn't the Holy Spirit come and live inside of me? I say, yeah, you do. But you know, there's a tangible sense of walking out the presence of God that can be really weak and it can be really strong sometimes. And I would ask you today, just as we kick into this, do you live with a sense of the presence of God? Do you? This word dwell, you know what this uh, word means? Uh, to set up residence in and not leave. You know, another word that you could actually use for this is uh, home. Think about home. And I want to suggest to you, I'm just, I'll just keep making up my own continuums, right? So I'm just going to give you another continuum. You know what? I reckon in this room, there's going to be this continuum. Some of you are going to be more like a motel room and some of you are going to be more like a home when it comes to the presence of Christ living in you. Let's kick into the motel room. See, that's a motel room. Now, if you look at that, you ought to just straight off the bat, just go... That doesn't look like a home. So is everyone with me on that? It just doesn't. Yeah, if your dwelling, Christ dwelling in you is like a, a motel room, what would it be like? Well, let me throw out a few thoughts for you to measure where you're at. Jesus comes and goes. Comes and goes. His presence comes and goes. I can remember like three months ago, that I had a little moment where Jesus and I are really close, but I don't, I don't know, I don't know what happened to that. It's kind of gone now. It's, it's like he came in and he just stayed overnight. He booked into the room, he just stayed overnight. And, and you've got like a motel kind of sense of, of Christ dwelling in you. It's like you've got some kind of business arrangement with Jesus. You give him a room every now and then, maybe you talk to him every now and then, and he gives you blessings. He pays you stuff, like a hotel room, right? He can come and stay every now and then. Just let me know when you're coming. Uh, I'll, I'll just kind of chip in a little bit. I'll give you the room and you can give me some cash. You, you give me the cash, you give me some blessings. If you're a motel room when it comes to the dwelling of Christ in you, you probably compartmentalize Jesus. 
You're just squaring them away in a little bit over there. Oh, that's a church thing. Oh, I did my quiet time today. I read my Bible and I prayed. Now I've done that. I'm just going to get on with my life. Yeah, yeah, no, I pray. And I know everyone should pray more, all right? That's the classic Christian kind of comment, isn't it, right? Yeah, yeah, I know I should be praying more, all right? You compartmentalise him and then you just get on with your life and what you want to do after that. You know, if you're a motel room, Jesus fits in with you. If you don't have a vacancy, you can just do something else for a while, right? Just hang out somewhere else. That's cool. I can do without your presence. And like that's the, that is like a weird thing, right? Is that some of us would sit here today and you just go, yeah, I think I can do without the presence of Jesus in my life. Is, it, is anyone with me? You're looking pretty solemn. Am I, am I like beating up on you here or what? I'm going to get to the good stuff in a minute, right? It's true, right? You could just go, yeah, I could do without it. I talk to people all the time about that. People who say that they're Christians, and they probably are. They just go, eh, I've got enough. It's like, really? Would you just, is that the goal? Is like our goal just to scrape over the line? Is that it? Like people's vision is too small. If your goal is just to scrape over the line in terms of the presence of God in your life, you have a pathetically small vision. Now I'm not chilled. All right? Because that's really uncool. It's really, it's like off the charts uncool for you to say about the risen Christ that you would just have a little bit of him. Like Tim Keller says, you can't ever call Jesus nice. Like he's not nice. Well, nice, when it comes to describing men in my books, has always been a four-letter word, and it is, right? But in a really bad way. Don't call me nice. Nice means, oh, he's, he's okay. He's, he wouldn't hurt anyone, really. Just, that is not Christ, right? And here's the thing. I'm just telling you this morning, you need more of the presence of Christ in your life than you have right now. And when you get it, You'll know that you need it. But often you get dull and you just think, eh, I got enough. That'll do. Yeah, I prayed this morning, you know, and I, you know, I just, I asked him to forgive me. We're all good. We're all good. That's, that's cool. Okay, I've I got this. I've got this day, really. I've got it. All right, Jesus, you don't even need to get out of your chair. I'm on this one. See, if you're a motel room, Jesus comes to be with you when it's convenient for you. One of those times where it gets really convenient for Jesus to come and stay is when you're in trouble, right? You know, I, uh, there's a lady who became a Christian in this church and she hasn't come, gone to any church for about 12 to 18 months, right? It's a true story. I went up to her on Friday and you just better believe that the job that I'm in, people ask me weird questions. All right, and one of the classic kind of weird questions they always got to say something about why they're not at church or they got to talk about church so I go up to this lady and she goes hey how's church going I'm just going well that's really interesting because you haven't been there for 18 months all right and church doesn't get you saved but it actually might be that you get some more of Christ's presence when you come to church right and so I didn't have a go at her right because Jesus was was very kind to people who didn't go to church and and so I uh, I said yeah, no, I think church is going okay. I mean, I haven't got a clue how church is going. Jesus knows how this church is going, right? But 
People ask me all the time, they go, oh, you got two services now. Yeah, so that means that we're going really well, just because we've got two services. So next week, we're going to have three, all right, at 1.30, and then we'll tell the world it's a great church and everything's happening. Anyway, so I'm, I'm talking to this lady. She says, how's church going? I said, yeah, yeah, no, it's going all right. And I said, I just felt to ask her directly. I said, what, how is church going for you? And do you know what she said? She said, yeah, well, it all kind of just kind of turned off for me. She said, is that normal? That I just end up in a place that's distant from Jesus? I said, yeah. I said, if you turn off every pipe that brings God's grace into your life, of course it is. I said, if you stop reading your Bible, praying, going to church and being part of biblical community, yeah, of course, right? That's, that's a no-brainer. It's not like something mystical and magical has happened to you that you've drifted from Jesus. That's just how it rolls. And I said, uh, I said well, what's happening with it? It was a really good-natured conversation. I wasn't having a go at her. I was, she's a very direct lady. And so I just said, okay, well, I'll just be direct with a direct lady and we'll have a good conversation. She said, yeah, well, it's coming back, you know. I said, tell me how that's happening. Like, you're not coming to church. You're not, you're not going to any church. It doesn't even have to be the project. You're not going to any church. You're just not connecting with Christians. You know what she said? She goes, well, she goes, I have to admit to you, she goes, it's hard times. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I heard you say that at church. That's what actually happens. Hard times come and then you go back to God. Because you can't live off them, right? Does everyone know that? The stuff that you're living on seems to work really well and it kind of sustains you until hard times come and all that stuff gets taken away and you realise you can't live off it anymore. If you're a motel room, your life looks pretty much the way that you want it to be. Doesn't look like Jesus, doesn't look like what he's into, it looks like the way that you want it to be. Now, let's get to the good stuff. What if it's a home? Well, here's the thing. If you're, if you're a home for Jesus, you know what? He never leaves. He never goes anywhere. He's always hanging around. And he's not like that annoying visitor that hangs around and doesn't know when to leave. All right? He's actually a cool one. He's a really good visitor to have because he's not a visitor, right? He's a family member and you're in the house together. Uh, there's stuff around the place that he likes. True? He's got some say on the list of favourites on the TV remote. If he watches TV, which I'm sure he does, but not for the purpose of entertainment. Here's the thing. If your life is a home for the dwelling of Christ... He influences over time more and more of the decor in the place. So you come home one day and he's got a painting up. You're just going, well, I don't really like that. Well, he likes it. And that's what happens. He starts renoing the place. All right? He's put a feature wall in because it starts getting to be about what he's into. If your life is a home for Christ, you know what else? He's part of every conversation that happens in there. You know, there's not much stuff in the Sondergeld house that's private. Because there's six people and it's a pretty big house, but no house is going to be big enough for four boys with their mum and dad. Everyone's just in on stuff, you know? And if you're parents, you probably had that moment where your kid just walks in halfway through a conversation and goes, what, what are you guys talking about? It's go, whoa, whoa, whoa. But that's what it is living in a house, right? You're just kind of bumping in. You're just part of stuff. 
Jesus is part of conversations that go on. He's part of every emotion, thought and action that's going on in the house. And he's there for everything. Because he's doing all of life with you. He's there for the tragedies, the celebrations and the trouble. Now, some of you are sitting there right now, probably, and you're thinking, is this, do I just have to get better at this discipline? Do I need to pray more? Okay, so I, Peter's just told me on my to-do list, I've got to go home and I've got to think about him more during the day. Like it's some kind of task. Now, I want to suggest to you, if you're thinking that way, Christ dwelling in you is not a task that you do. It's actually about fellowship and communion. That's what it's about. It's about you walking really closely in friendship with him. That's what it is. You see, the more Christ is at home in you, the more you'll look like him. And when he is at home in you, you'll have power. I don't have to answer this, but do you want, all out loud, do you want power? Then get the presence of Christ. Do you want power? Then make sure Jesus is dwelling in you, not like a motel room, but like a home. Here's a good question. How does Jesus dwell in my heart? Some of you might sit there and you go, eh, nice work, Pete. You know, you're doing well. You're giving us this really vague kind of spiritual, theological thing. I haven't got a clue what to do with it. All right? Yeah, I'd like to be at home with Christ. I'd love him to be at home with me. But how does Jesus actually dwell in your heart? Now, here's the thing. This is another 25 sermons probably. So I'm just going to pick one thing. I'm going to pick one thing um, and, and kind of push in on that. Here's the bottom line. If you go back to Ephesians 3 verse um, 17, right? it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through what? Faith. All right? So here's the bottom line. You have to do something. You have to do something. You want the presence of God, you have to do something. Now here's the thing. It's true that God loves you. It's true that you can do nothing to add to your being accepted in Jesus. But it is not true that there is nothing you can do to increase your, the dwelling or the intimacy that you have with Christ. God's grace is not opposed to effort. Hear this. God's grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. And there's a massive difference there. Now, it's always good with things like this, to go to some wise dead guys, all right? Which is what we're going to do now, okay? And there's a lot of wise dead guys, okay? Let me give you a few, uh, a few thoughts here. This one is by Walter Meller. This is what he said. He said this, he said, labour to be brought near. Work to be brought near. Now, that's weird, right? Because labour is an active term that gives us something to do, but to be brought near is a passive stance that sounds like it's God's responsibility. You get that? And welcome to the Bible. 
That's what the Bible is. The Bible's filled with statements like that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. What's that? Well, it's both and. And that's what Paul's praying here. He's saying, God, I pray that by faith Christ would dwell. Now, who actually causes the dwelling? Well, at the end of the day, God's the one who brings about the dwelling and brings his presence. But you need to work at it. You need to work at it. Listen to what John Calvin said. He said, let us therefore labor more to feel Christ living in us. It's, it's weird, right? It's a, it's a weird kind of, man, like how, am I, how are we doing with that? So let's work hard so that Christ lives in us. What about this one from John Owen? He said, um, labor therefore to fill your hearts with the cross of Christ. And Jonathan Edwards we should labour to be continually growing in divine love. Sound weird to you? Well, you get it. If it sounds weird, you get it. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us have moments where we get up in the morning and we expect the presence of God just to fall like the dew did last night. All right? You get up in the morning, there's dew on the grass, you just go, okay, well, I did my quiet time today, I spent time with Jesus... So now he's going to dwell with me and I'm going to have a sense of his presence. But here's the problem with that, right? The problem with that is that we're passive in that. And do you know what happens with people like that sometimes is they end up getting into a period of dryness in their lives. They don't have a sense of God actually walking alongside them. They can end up in a period of dryness and you know what happens when people end up in a place of spiritual dryness is they start blaming other people for it because it's not their fault you know what i'm talking about it's my environment so the church doesn't sing the songs that i like and the music's not the way that i want the music to be and i don't like the preacher someone said to me the other day oh we don't really like it when people other than you get up and preach all right and i said you know why People at the church generally probably appreciate my preaching because I'm the lead guy and if people don't like it, they just don't come back. And we've probably had hundreds of people come to the church who haven't come back, all right? So it's not like I'm some kind of golden boy. We blame our friends and sometimes we even blame God himself. We, uh, we are the ones who haven't got the taps turned on to bring the presence of God and so we blame other people. Let's get really practical here. Let me give you a really practical example of how you can work for the presence of God. You can stop doing so much stuff. You hear me? Stop doing so much stuff. Stop junking up your life with stuff and trying to schedule God into a 20-minute window somewhere. When was the last time you got away for like four or five hours or even a whole day to be with God? And a lot of you just go, I don't have time for that. See, that's the problem. And you've got these funky little like, like handheld mobile devices that bleep at you and tell you that you've got to pay attention to them every single time that they bleep. Man, I tell you, one of the most spiritual settings on my iPhone is flight mode. That turns everything off. And I've started doing it. And the one that I found before that, that's almost as spiritual, is do not disturb. S 
stop being interrupted. Stop going from one thing to the next. Stop tending to your phone every time it bleeps. Stop scheduling God. You can't schedule God's presence. You can't say like 7.30 to 7.50, weekday mornings. That's when you're going to come to me, God. Like, don't you think that's weird? Someone, I remember hearing someone a little while ago say something about having good conversations with their wife and they're just going, you've just got to schedule a time in your calendar. Just go, yeah, she's going to love that. Honey, I, I couldn't talk, but we've just clicked over to 7.05 and I've got the next 25 minutes till 7.30. Go. <laughs> so you know instinctively, and you're laughing about it, you know instinctively that relationships don't work that way. And you are doing friendship, you're doing home with the king of the universe who wants to be in deep communion with you. And so you're not going to be able to do that by just scheduling it. Now, do you have responsibilities? Yeah, you do. Do you need to go to work? Yes, you do. Is that something that God will have you do? Yes, it would be something that God has you to do. Does God want you to spend regular time with him every day? Yes, he does. Does God want you to talk to him all day long? Yes, he does. Am I saying not to do a Bible reading and a prayer in the morning? No, I'm not. I'm just saying that the pattern of your life needs to look different than just a scheduled 30-minute section. And maybe some husbands and wives uh, who find it hard to do it, just say, you need to say to your spouse, you need to go, hey, listen, I think it'd be really good for you uh, if you wanted to. I'll just, I'm going to make the space for you. So it's not so much you're telling him, but it's like if you think it'd be really good for you that you just went and spent a day with Jesus, just go and do it. I'll, I'll take the kids for that day. And you just let's get in his presence. I'm not suggesting that you have to add something else to your to-do list. I am suggesting that you need to take some things off your to-do list. But here's, here's the rub. I can say that. You are already giving yourself relationally to something when you're not giving yourself relationally to Jesus. You're you're already doing it. So all I'm talking about here is I'm actually saying, and, and an example is that you actually can give yourself to your iPhone relationally. You can be attentive to it, right? Or to your Samsung Galaxy doesn't sound quite as nice, does it? See, I'm part of the cult, the Apple cult. What am I saying? I'm not actually saying you need to do something new. I'm saying that you need to repent and turn your relationality, your worship towards something else. You need to turn it to him. And you're going to have to be brutal with your schedule to do it. Seriously, if you haven't gone and just spent half half a day with God for the last 12 months, you're due, I think. What are you doing? That's something you go, well, what do you do? I don't know. Go for a bushwalk. Sing to him. Take take something to play worship songs with. Take, Take your Bible. Take some inspirational books that you're reading. Take a comfortable chair. Let's, let's wrap up.
See, the Spirit brings about power inside of us by helping Christ to dwell in us by faith, which leads us to a powerful revelation of the love of Christ. You have to get this. Let's go to verse 17 to 19. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Notice a couple of things Paul said here. You actually need strength to get to know the love that God has for you. And on top of that, Paul's saying you can actually come to know the unknowable. I think about that. That's what he's saying. He's going, the love of Christ. Like, here's the thing. Like, I could say to you this morning, uh, Jesus loves you. And some of you in the back of your head just go, yeah, I know. Well, you don't know as you need to know. Because the love of Christ, knowing the love of Christ in this context is not about intellectual knowledge. Like, really? Like, would I have a healthy marriage if Ange said, I know intellectually that Peter loves me? Like, would that, like, that wouldn't be healthy, right? That would be a bit weird. There's almost a sense in which you need to climb inside of that. You need to know love in a relational way. I'm not even talking, some of the dudes here are going, oh, he's talking about ex- experiences and emotions. I'm not even talking about emotions. I'm talking about relational knowledge. Knowing things relationally. You know what faith is? Faith is trusting. And you know, if, if you've ever had a relationship with anyone of any sort, you know that a good relationship works by trust. And that when you trust someone else, a whole new vista of information, and it's not really information, it's like relational information opens up because there's an interchange going on between you and the other person that is characterised by trust. So what is the Spirit doing? Well, He's working to bring power by having Christ dwell in you so that you'll know His love more. Now think back, if, if you're someone who um, can remember the time where they came to faith, where they decided to trust Jesus for the first time, just think back to that moment. I was 16. Just give me a nod if you remember at that moment thinking that God loved you. Remember that? Here's my question to you. Has your knowledge of God's love for you plateaued since that point in time or has it deepened? What is it? It's deepened, right? Why has it deepened? Because the love, because Christ is dwelling in your heart. And as as you've gone through time and Christ has dwelt in your heart and the presence of God has been realer and realer and bigger and bigger, you actually start to get a grasp on the unknowable, don't you? And you just go, I actually, right, right now, like I would say to you without any shadow of a doubt that I feel more loved by Jesus than in the moment where I actually became a Christian. Like if I look back at that, I think that's paper thin. And I feel like I'm standing on six metres of concrete now in terms of my understanding of how much Christ loves me. But do you know what? In 10, 20, 30 years' time, if God lets me live this long, my six metre concrete is going to look paper thin. Why? Because Christ is going to dwell in my heart more. Do you see that? I'm going to have a sense of his presence more. I'm going to actually know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge in a way that I don't know right now. Here's the thing. And this will sound like a criticism, but I don't mean it as a criticism. 
you don't know the love of God enough. I don't care if you've been tracking through this stuff for the last 50 years. I don't care about it. You just don't know it enough. The one thing that this scripture should do to you is just to say, hey, whoa, all right? I need to listen when someone quotes John 3.16. Because I don't know it as I could know it. And this is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, to know God's love more. Let me do a quick recap and then I'm going to finish with the scripture. The nature of the strength of people is Christ dwelling in them. Calvin says this, he says, He who has Christ dwelling in him can want nothing. If we have the Spirit, we have Jesus. If we're partakers in Jesus, we have the Spirit. The Spirit is about having Christ dwelling in our hearts. Through faith, the Son of God was made our own. As He dwells with us, the more deeply we understand His love for us. Let me ask you this question in closing. What would change in your life with an ongoingly deepening revelation of God's love? What would change in your life with an ongoingly deepening revelation of God's love? Let me ask you this one. What has changed? You can think back to that moment where uh, you gave your life to Jesus. See, the deepening of your knowledge of Christ's love for you has changed some things. What has it changed? And let me go right back to where I started this morning. What fear is gone? So you, you have Christ. How does that strengthen you? For me personally to have Christ has strengthened me no end. I am doing a whole bunch of stuff I would never have ever thought I would ever be doing. I'm doing a whole bunch of stuff that is inherently um, I would have a fearful response to. Why? Because well, he said that I should do it and he didn't just say you just need to go and do it like a drill sergeant. He said I'm going to be in you and I'm going to walk with you as you do that. And do you know what? I asked one of my sons when they were really young, I said, who can beat you if Jesus defends you? Who can stop you? You know what they said? No one. I said, oh, okay, so how strong are you? If Jesus is with you, how strong are you? And they go, you're as strong as Jesus. And it's not that you have just a drill sergeant there, you actually have someone who loves you. Many of you would know this uh, scripture from 1 John 4 verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I want to say this to you this morning, a fearless person is a powerful person. But how do you get to the point of being fearless? 
Well, you don't get to the point of being fearless by taking control of your life and hungering after power. That's not how you get to the point of being fearless because there will be a day, if you're that kind of person and you're just going, I'm just going to control my life and do what I want to do and make sure that I'm not scared of anything, if you're that kind of person, I guarantee you there will be a day where you will be fearful and you will fall apart because of fear because God will be revealed in all of his strength. See, the pathway to fearlessness, the pathway to becoming an incredibly powerful person is to have Christ dwelling in you and to have a deepening revelation of his love.